Last episode, you guys, we tackled the cosmic scale. We tried to wrap our minds around just how big and vast the known universe is. And we kind of talked about the mind-bending theories about what lies beyond it, or what might lie beyond it. We had a great time talking with space enthusiast Sam Anderson. But as promised, we wanted to go even deeper with a professional in the field, I'm really excited to be joined by Professor Suksu Rasanan, cosmetologist and theoretical physicist at the University of Helsinki, Finland, the country's largest and oldest university of science. He writes extensively, a cosmologist, I'm so sorry, cosmetologist, <laughs> the autocorrect, please forgive me, Suksu, uh, the autocorrect on my Google Docs corrected you to a completely wildly different field that um, has nothing to do with this. Still <laughs> Absolutely <important>. hilarious. <laughs> Very important for all the cosmetologists out there. <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah, it's not the first time. <laughs> That's amazing. Why would it do that? Um, well, this is a much more important field. <laughs> Cosmologist, theoretical physicist at the University of Helsinki in Finland, the country's largest and oldest university of science. He writes extensively on phenomena of from black holes to dark matter in various publications, including for the Astronomical Society, the science section of the largest newspaper in Finland. 
He's perhaps most known in the field for his work on trying to explain why the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate. One of the first researchers in the world to look for an explanation to this mystery in the seemingly empty pockets of space. We're going to hear from Dr. Rasanan on that and so much more today. Professor, thank you so much for joining us on DOST. Thank you. An irrelevant correction. I'm a senior researcher, not a professor. Not Aha. that it makes any difference whatsoever. You are a senior researcher and you've contributed so much to this field. How is Finland treating you tonight? Uh, well, I think the question now is how will Los Angeles be treating me tonight? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's kind of a gloomy day, which is a nice break from the 95 degree heat wave we've been incurring mm. for the last month straight. Has it been hot, cold, everything in between there? What What's the weather like right there right now? Yeah, uh, actually, this summer, Finland didn't suffer from extreme heat, unlike much of Europe. We were just... Uh, what some people would find uncomfortably hot, but not unbearably hot. But but we are enjoying a very nice and crispy autumn right mm. now. Thank you. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, as autumn should be, right? Going into the end of September, early October should be that crispy, nice fall weather, which is kind of lacking in the desert out here in California. But I'm glad that you're experiencing it there. I would love to visit Finland one day. It sounds like a beautiful place. Um you know, I, I I start the show usually by asking people kind of for their dosed moment. I mean, perhaps what brought you into this field in the first place, um, you know, either before or after you started your academic career. I mean, what has been the most dosed fact about cosmology that has been kind of the most impactful for you carrying carrying forward your life and career? Yeah, I don't think there's like I single fact, uh, like a single thing, like a single research result uh, in cosmology. But I think what's really, when I think about it, when I stop to think about it, uh, what really has impact is how we are the product of a complicated cosmic evolution. You know, that, you know, in the first minutes, the light nuclei form, then at 380,000 years, atoms form, then molecules form, then you have stars and, and planets, and, you know, this, and then the light nuclei get processed in the stars. Uh, and we, you know, in our bodies, you know, carry the memory of these cosmic processes. I mean, go into that a little bit more, because you hear that kind of, hippie adage that we all come from stardust <laughs> man we're we're all part of the stars but i mean that yeah. that is true to a certain extent right i mean can you can you explain that a little bit more yeah sure so if we look at the uh where you know where have we come from where has everything come from then uh, at early times in the universe let's say you know before the first before the first before the universe was one second old you know the universe was composed of uh a gas of particles. So you have, you know, you have protons, neutrons, electrons, other particles. So this is a hot bath and there are, you know, there are no planets. There's no stars or, or galaxies or anything. And this gas is almost the same everywhere. There's just the variations in density are just one part in 100,000. And then, uh, if, 
protons and neutrons try to combine, for example, then the temperature is so hot that they break apart. But as the universe expands, it cools down. So history of the universe is really a history of, of cooling down, becoming colder. And when the, and the universe is about three minutes old, <clears throat> the temperature is so low, it's only about one billion degrees. Here it doesn't really matter, you know, whether you use Celsius or Fahrenheit. So uh, it's, uh, it's that that pro- when a proton and a neut- neutron collide, they don't break, break up anymore. It's cool enough for the nuclei. And then, you know, proton, neutron combine, you get deuterium. So that's a nuclei when you have one proton, one neutron. You know, you hit that with another neutron, you get tritium and so on. So you have these collisions between nuclei. So you build, you know, step by step, you build uh, heavier and heavier nuclei. But when the universe is, but at the same time, the universe keeps expanding, keeps cooling. And when the universe is about 30 minutes old, about half an hour, uh, the temperature has dropped so much that nuclear reactions shut down. And because you have so little time, you only produce the lightest nuclei, you know, helium, uh, hydrogen, helium, and some lithium. And then these later, you know, then condense, uh, parts of this matter condense to form stars. And then in stars, of course, you have a lot more time than half an hour. And then there you have time, you know, to build up from heavy to lighter to heavier nuclei. And when stars explode, this material gets distributed. So, and then after this first population of stars, from the stuff that's been processed inside them, these heavier elements, you build the second pop- second generation of stars. And then you also build planets. And so, you know, all of the nuclei that we are built from where like the hydrogen, helium, lithium is mostly this stuff that was built in the first half an hour of the universe and the rest has been processed in stars. Um, and if you look around the universe and you see how much hydrogen, how much helium, um, how much lithium is there, then you see that these observations match our calculations of, you know, how much do you produce in an expanding universe in, in 30 minutes. So it's not... Uh, a figure of speech to say that that uh, the material that our material has been created in the first half an hour and in stars we are we are literally made of stardust i'm uh really glad you brought that up suksu because it it the last episode where we talked about the cosmic scale and how big everything really is around us and how just minuscule and microscopic we are in relation to you know, the the galaxy we're in, let alone the cluster of galaxies and let alone the, mm. the structures outside that. And I think that the takeaway from that that people shouldn't take is that that means we are just very insignificant because we are very small compared to the rest of the universe. I, I think that means we're only insignificant if you use size as the measure of significance, which I don't think it is. There's this other measure of complexity and that even though we are a, you know, we are part of the universe, we're a product of it, we're a fraction of it, just because we are very small in relation to these massive structures doesn't mean we are insignificant because this this high degree of complexity of our, mm. of us as a product of the universe that is then able to understand and study the universe, you know, at the, the universe understanding itself. So it, it makes us, I think, very significant in this kind of vast <laughs> expanse. Yeah, let me continue a bit on this question of significance. So, you know, the universe is an irreducible part of us. But 
we are not an irreducible part of the universe you know it, it you know it would do it would do fine without us and i think so on this question of significance i think one aspect of this of cosmology and and physics in general that when you study it uh becomes very striking which is really that the the things that are in the universe and the laws of the universe uh are completely inhuman and that uh and that the only meaning the only measure of significance that exists in the universe in the universe is what we bring into it and this meaning of this feeling of inhumanity and insignificance is very liberating because it means that you know we are not accountable you know there's there's no great plan that that we are part of there's no you know um cosmic father figure that 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 we are accountable to we are only accountable to each other and our life is only as meaningful as we make it and we are free to you know to make and remake our idea uh of how humans should relate to each other you know based on on how we or how we better understand the universe absolutely do you have this is just totally out of left field but do you have a favorite like space movie <laughs> I'm just thinking of contact because I mean, I, yeah. Carl Sagan actually. I didn't even know this until I was researching for this show, but Carl Sagan apparently like worked on Contact, the film. Yeah, and I need to rewatch it because it, it, I, I now I'm like way more curious about it now that I know that. But yeah, do you do you have a favorite one? Yeah, I think uh, I think one part of. Uh why i became a physicist is probably my interest in science fiction yeah, nice. uh, when i was young well i'm still well i'm still interested in science fiction <laughs> um uh but i mean i thought contact was was you know i didn't like that movie at all because in my view <laughs> that, 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 uh, that that movie had nothing to do with science. <laughs> Carl you know, Sagan, it, what happened? You know, yeah, what happened, man? You let us down. <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, that movie was a way of, uh, you know, uh, you know, if you're talking about the same we- movie, you know, the heroine, you know, goes to the outer reaches of space and meets her father. Like, mm-hmm. what are what are we talking? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, um, because. There are interesting questions about, for example, our relation to the universe, or our relation, for example, to possible other life in the universe, and so on, uh, that one can discuss in an in an intelligent and in an interesting manner. But what Contact did was to use space only metaphorically. Mm-hmm. That's why I said that it has nothing to do with science, because science and space and you know this first contact is only a tool. You know, it's only used as a device. Or talking about the relations that humans have mm. with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which reminds me, before we get into the real nitty-gritty about theoretical physics and everything, there's this article that continues to kind of pop up, or I guess this theory or phenomenon that continues to pop up every couple mm-hmm. of years that we see, which is a radio signal from a nearby star is signaled back to us. I mean, I and, and of course, all you know, alien mm-hmm. hunters and all these people are... Uh, in a frenzy saying it could be possible extraterrestrial communication, but most likely it's somehow being reverberated back from our 
communication sources or satellite somehow. But it's really bizarre because it is like really far away. It's 4.2 light years away um, where this unexplained radio signal appears to be coming from the direction of the star. Do you have you read about that at all? I've never heard about it. Yeah, I'll send you the article. It's super interesting. I just I just popped in my head when you were talking about that because I don't know. I it, Mike, you were saying that you've seen it. There's a couple of those articles. Yeah. There's like the one there's the one about the, you know, the supposed radio signal that we're getting and then there's another one of like uh structures, but it's like there's like a structure that we can observe that doesn't is inexplicable. I think there's just like a single academic will like put out like something and then it the structures like, totally seem bunk though right when it's like oh there's like this you know right <laughs> this thing that's just like rock formation yeah. somewhere on anyway, mars or right. whatever but uh Suksu, did you have a favorite space movie though oh yeah what was your <laughs> oh, so what yeah. was your favorite sci-fi movie <laughs> uh <laughs> i would imagine most of them are not scientific <laughs> yeah yeah um i just rewatched solaris by Andrei Tarkovsky. Oh, cool. oh wow. And, and the book by Stanislav Lem. So again, the book, book is about, you know, the relationship that humans have with each other and, but also our relations to foreign intelligence, you know, to other, to other intelligences and our relation to the universe. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the book also uses the science mostly, you know, just as a cover to, to discuss relations between humans, but, but it's, but it's much more, uh, moving and much more powerful, uh, much more genuine than, than contact. So that's probably one of my favorite movies. Then there's John Carpenter's Dark Star. Oh, hell oh, yeah. What? Yeah, you know. That's like that his first, much... first film, right? Uh, I don't know if it's first, it's it, probably his first feature film, yeah. at least. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh my God. That that's amazing is... that that, yeah, that John Carpenter, I'm assuming he scored that as well. I would love to, I feel like I've never seen that movie. If we, I think we didn't watch it. We went back and watched like all of them, but that oh, was man, like his I really, first, first okay, feature. Say like less. I'm, I'm. I know what's on my docket tonight. <laughs> um, let's let's talk. Let's get down to the basics here because yeah. I took astronomy classes in college. I feel like my teacher was not as engaging as you are, and so I would love to kind of refresh on some of these things about just mm-hmm. theoretical physics in general because a lot of people have heard the term <laughs> i would hope most people have heard the term yeah. but i've never yeah. really heard it explained from yeah. an actual physicist yeah okay so uh so physics you know in the end of the 19th beginning of 20th century uh sp- split into experimental observation also if you think physics as a whole whether it's you know whether it's cos- cosmology or, or particle physics or condensed matter or whatever it's an empirical science and what that means is that uh, it's built in the interaction between theory and observations and now because things are so specialized now you have specialized people who do experiments and observations experimental physicists and then you have theorists who you know build theories and see, you know, what do these theories have to say about observations? Or oh, we have that kind of observation. How can we explain it with our theories? How can we test our, test our theories? And it's this interplay that makes physics work. Right, because, you know, here we can do our own experimentation here, right? You can take a, a bowling ball to the top of a building and drop it next to a feather and see which one falls fast. You know, like all that stuff of, yeah. of physics that yeah. you can we have the ability and the tools to actually test it. But then there's this whole world of uh, 
trying to guess what's happening in the universe and not exactly a lot of different ways to actually test it. And part of that is kind of come up with different ways to kind of prove the physics or the explanations we have for how things work in the universe. Is that right? Yeah, although, you know, actually, we have a huge amount of observations in cosmology. I mean, there's lots and lots of observations uh, coming all the time. And uh, it's really, it's really amazing how much we do know. Mm -hmm. Take us through the breakthroughs that have happened over time. I mean, you you mentioned that, you know, over time, things became much more scientifically applicable from the world of theory into just, you know, applied science and stuff like that. And how did I be first, I guess, just talk about how people even understood the world and universe in ancient times, because I feel like there were ancient civilizations that kind of peripherally understood the nature of the cosmos without being able to mathematically explain it. Right. Like there were like ancient astronomers who right. like, have documented like observing supernova explosions. Not that they knew what it was, but observing phenomena yeah. in the sky. And yeah. we use those, you know, centuries old documentations to today and stuff like that. But yeah. 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 If we think about uh, understanding of cosmology in the sense of a science, you know, that you have a which means that it's empirical, so you know it's built in relation to observations. But science also means uh, that there is mathematical modeling, and you have a theory that you understand what's going on. Because, like you mentioned, I mean, of course, there's astronomical observations that go back, you know, thousands of years. Um, there was recently a very, very fun paper a few years ago done that involved some people from the University of Helsinki, some astronomers who used uh, ancient Egyptian observations of the star Algol. Um, but uh, but if we really think about it in terms of that you have empirical, so you have observations, that you have mathematical modeling and you have theory, then there is no science before the 17th century. And in the 17th century, there is big breakthrough. And uh, and it's actually quite interesting how it happens that uh, that that as you look at it, you know, before that there was the idea that um, that the understanding of the universe in terms of theory, is like philosophical. Like you have a big philosophical theory and you think, you know, how is this related to theology, you know, which, mm-hmm. you know, in Europe, you know, was a, was a big part of that and so on. And in the 16th century, there is this, 17th century, uh, there is this b- big breakthrough that you start looking at things uh, in terms of what are the observations you can make and what can you conclude from them and how can you how can you model these observations you know independent of what are your preconceptions and uh, and there indeed you know what happens on the sky played a big role first of all because there are plenty of observations on the sky it's very easy to observe the sky and it's very easy to mark down what happens on the sky and to communicate to communicate this to others and the first um theory of physics was Newton's classical mechanics uh, expressed in his big wor- uh, in his book called the principles of natural philosophy uh, in 1687 and in this book uh, he laid out the idea that okay all matter consists of particles these particles interact by affecting each other with forces. And then he said, basically, if they interact with a certain force, how do they move? And that's all. And it's the simplicity uh, of this 
And this simplicity of this scheme and the fact that you can apply it to uh, both what's happening on Earth as well as what's happening in the solar system, you know, how do planets move, how do comets, comets move, that made it an incredible breakthrough. And in this context, um, and then, you know, physics, you know, started off on that, that you have theories, then you, then you do observations where you test those theories. And then if the, if observations don't match, then you either you didn't calculate things well enough or there was things you didn't take into account or maybe you have to have a new theory and then things really start, start, start moving up. And actually, I would like to say that, you know, before that, if the idea of what is the universe like was this philosophical thinking and, you know, you think on your own and you apply theological principles or whatever. And after that, and in the 17th century, picked up really from crafts work, you know, in the way how you build ships, you build ships, you know, you don't, you want to build the ocean cruiser, you don't do it yourself, you know, you have teams, specialized teams, you know, these people, you know, uh, have, have certain techniques for doing the planks, and these people prepare the ropes, and these people, you know, know how to do the masts and, uh, and so on. And it's this big, what we would call nowadays, industrial effort. And then this was transferred really from engineering and crafts onto science. That's a uh, really cool that you brought that up because I was just listening to uh, a podcast the other day about uh, the death of stars. And it was all these different um, uh, scientists who just study stars and each one of them, their field was so specialized. Like one of them, yeah, it was, yeah. I study this one kind of light wave that comes from this one kind of star. And it was like so specific and it makes you realize that, I mean, this is all of science and all of academics, but you have so many people like working collaboratively on all their little niche things. And then yeah. it's, it's this huge international effort. And I guess it really speaks for, to the, to the need of real like international cooperation and solidarity. Cause that's how, that's the only, like, you're like, there's an analogy of putting together a ship, you know, it's like, there's so many experts and so many small things. And then when you, on their own may seem like so niche, like what's the point, but then in their totality, just give us, give us everything. It's almost like intertwined with like human rights. It's like, we should have the universal right to study space and to like understand the nature of the cosmos and to be able to cooperate about it. It's kind of an interesting take on like social justice issues. It's like when you're really incorporating the universe, you it's know, necessary for science. Yeah, that's what makes space force so, I guess, absurd. But you, you also said something that really struck me um, that Newton discovered a new form of beauty. Yeah, exactly. Because you know, physicists talk a lot about beauty, and uh, theoretical physicists certainly, and they also use and aesthetics is also an important tool for us. And this really starts with Newton. So uh, if you start, uh, so considerations of beauty in describing the world are, of course, very old. You know, there was this idea, for example, that sun, that Earth is the center of the universe and the sun and the planets go around in circles around it. You know, there's this idea that, you know, circle is this perfect shape and, and, and aesthetic idea that we are we are the, at the center of the universe. You know, and then, they, uh, you know, Ptolemy came along in the, you know, the first century and then had this, okay, we have to complicate this model a bit with these circles. We had to add, you know, more complicated orbits. And co with Copernicus, then the sun became the center. With Kepler, then instead of circles, it became ellipses and became more complicated. But with, uh, but, you know, but all of these had, you know, different aesthetic ideas of what the world looks like. But with Newton, 
you know, if you look at uh, Newton's laws of, so the planetary orbits as described by Newton's laws of gravity, then they are not perfect circles. They're not perfect ellipses. You know, if you had only the sun and only one planet, and if they were perfectly spherical, then according to Newton's law, you would have an ellipse. But, you know, you have other planets and, uh, you know, comets and so on in the, sorry, sorry, asteroids in the, in the solar system, you know, that affect the orbits. Um, so the actual realized orbits look very messy. But with Newton, if you look at Newton's law of gravity, Newton's law of gravity says that, you know, gravity depends only on the relative positions of the planets or of the other particles. You know, so there's no absolute center. It's not that the Earth is the center or Sun is the center. You know, it doesn't matter where you are. So in this sense, you know, there is this deeper notion of symmetry. You know, earlier, if you have a circular orbit, then the orbit doesn't change when you rotate. That's like a circular symmetry. But if you look at Newton's theory of gravity, first of all, it's symmetric with respect to the choice of, you know, where you choose to put the origin of space. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. make any difference mm-hmm. because it's so relative. And second, that if you look at Newton's law of gravity, it, it just, uh, it doesn't depend on the direction. It's the same in all directions. So Newton showed that uh, the laws of gravity and actually all the laws of physics are the same in all positions in the universe and in all directions. So there is this symmetry which is doesn't which is related to the laws of physics, not to the realization of those laws. So not about you know what the solar system is like, but what are the laws that govern the solar system. And this Newtonian theory has its own beauty, you know, which is not related to the material realizations that we see around us. I've sometimes described it, it's, it's as if you know. You music would never be played. You would only write notes. You know, then only the people who can read the notes would understand the beauty of music. And the beauty of physics is a bit like that. It's such an interesting point that I've never thought of, like just the art of it all. Um, and when you extrapolate the symmetry, I mean, as something as simple as minuscule life on Earth, and then that can be mimicked all the way out into the the broader cosmos. And it reminds me, Mike, of last week when Sam was talking about just the natural selection process and how you can look at the universe in terms of the survivability and life of these different systems. And it, it is just fascinating when you look at Newton's law of, of uh, and, and, and looking at the symmetry of these things. Yeah, Susa, it, it actually, now that you make that analogy of, uh, it makes me feel like I need to understand physics like the math of it now because if it's the equivalent to like not being able to hear music but if you learn music and you're able to read it then you can like understand what music is it uh it makes me feel like i'm missing out not understanding not being able to read physics and and in physics there is a and then of course if you go to you know modern physics if you go to relativity general special relativity general relativity quantum physics then they have or you know different theories of particle physics then they all have their own symmetries, like their own forms of beauty. And in fact, nowadays, you know, if you start writing a new theory of particle physics, a new model of particle physics, then actually your starting point is usually the symmetry. So what sort Mm. of symmetry does it have? So physicists talk a lot about what is the symmetry and, you know, is this a beautiful symmetry or, you know, or an ugly symmetry? And these considerations of, of beauty are in physics intertwined 
with truth. So, so, wow. so in physics, you don't just, mm. just, you know, shapes that are beautiful or ugly. You also have, you know, theories that are true or untrue. So physics, so physics is used aesthetics, but it's, a, you know, you have to have an understanding of aesthetics, a sense of aesthetics that's conditioned on observations. You know, do you have, because there are different kinds of physical theories, you have different kinds of aesthetic ideas and aesthetic standards. And then you need to go to observations and see, you know, which one of these aesthetics is actually realized or, you know, is actually describes the laws of nature in our universe. Which is the best looking yeah, so is it, is it the more beautiful, the more beautiful it <laughs> yeah. is, the more true it is? Yeah, right. Is, is that, that not, 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 not necessarily. The most beautiful, that's very easy. It's general relativity by oh, far. Cool. It's, it's oh. so beautiful. This understanding of, uh, of space time, of gravity in terms of, in terms of, of curvature. It's so, um, it's, I, I don't know. It's enchanting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like so that that's, word. That's the next breakthrough, right? So we have yeah, Newton, Einstein. We have the breakthrough with Newton, and then we have Einstein and relativity. And is that is that the next big point in which we could we see the world and and the universe differently? Uh, well, of course, there's a lot of uh, a lot of developments, but maybe actually, I would put if I put just one thing in mm-hmm. between, which is that so we have the classical mechanics, you know, with Newton, you know, in the 1600s, then maybe I would. <clears throat> from the point of view of our understanding of the world, I would pick electromagnetism, uh, you know, in the 1860s, when we understand, because before that, of course, electricity was known. I mean, the word, you know, comes, the word comes from the ancient Greeks. They already knew the phenomenon. And we had some idea of magnetism, but this law, these laws of how are electricity and magnetism related, uh, who were, which were found by Maxwell in, in the 1860s, um, and this was really, you know, physics, this was a major breakthrough in unifying these two things. And, you know, the progress of physics, the progress of our understanding of the universe uh, consists of unifications. So it consists of taking things that we thought were uh, completely separate or had only weak connections and understanding them as part of a unified whole. So Maxwell, you know, took electricity and magnetism and showed that they are part of, you know, this big theory of electromagnetism. And then he showed that, okay, if we have electric fields, they can create magnetic fields, magnetic fields, they can create electric fields. And then, you know, he realized that this means that actually you can have this continuous transformation of between electric and magnetic fields where you don't need electric charges to, you know, to have the electric field up. So, and this sort of um, electric field transforming to a magnetic field and back and forth would then go travel at the speed of light. And he understood that actually light is electromagnetic waves. And not only that, he understood that, okay, the the light that we see, you know, we see a very narrow band. You know, we basically see light that has a wavelength of about one, one micrometer, so one millionth of a meter. If it's longer than that, we don't see it. If it's shorter than that, we don't see it. And he realized that there is this whole spectrum of, of electromagnetic waves, you know, with, you know, with much smaller wavelength like X-rays or much larger like radio waves. And pretty quickly people then learned how to, you know, make radio waves, you know, in, in the lab and then also how to use them for communication. And this was, uh, so of course this had huge te- technological implications, electricity, radio and so on. But if we concentrate on 
our view of the world, then it really showed that the part of the physical world that we see is very narrow. Wow. Ex- yeah, explain that. Yeah, so I guess because there's so much... You're saying we only see this a narrow band of light, which I think is a somewhat yes. commonly understood concept, but that means there's just so much other just light happening yeah, yeah. at all times that yeah. we just can't yeah, perceive. So, yeah, so so the reason we see this narrow band of light is because uh, so the sun produces this sort of light, and this is the sort of light that makes through Earth's atmosphere and is also reflected from stuff on Earth. So it, this has been useful for our evolution. So our eyes have evolved you know, to see this narrow band of light. So the reason we see stars in the sky is because we have literally evolved to see starlight. But there's a, you know, the other side of that is the reason at night we only see stars in the sky where the uh, sky night appears black is because we don't see all these other wavelengths. You know, the, the night sky is lit with microwaves. If we were able to see microwave frequencies, the, the sky would be bright. Wow. And if you look at, you know, and whenever in observations, you know, when we have under, when we have been able to look at different wavelengths on the sky, whether it's uh, microwaves, x-rays, radio, then we have, you know, seen new kinds of phenomena in the universe. And, you know, there's all these things that are there in the sky that are physical that we can, you know, detect with our instruments, uh, but that we cannot directly perceive it's so cool and when you were describing the discovery of electromagnetism the interact the the production of magnetism by electricity and vice versa i just that's that's some symmetry right there i'm already understanding things a little bit more um and so <laughs> yeah, then if, uh, uh, go ahead yeah, yeah yeah i don't know if you're joking but I, i'm not i'm not <laughs> <laughs> but, but 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 you're absolutely right because the relation between electric fields and magnetic fields in Maxwell's electromagnetism was the key to special relativity. Mm. And actually, the relation between these electric and magnetic fields, so if you look at what is the symmetry, because it's true, if you look at electromagnetism, it's not just that, you know, in the physical processes they convert to each other, but if you look at these equations, if you mix them up, if you say, okay, let me take a part of the electric field and put it in the magnetic field and part of the magnetic field and put it in the electric field. And then you see that uh, that you, the, the world still looks the same. And this symmetry between electric and magnetic fields is actually then uh, a reflection of the symmetry of space-time that exists in special relativity. And if we next go to, to Einstein, you know, from, this, mm-hmm. from Maxwell, where there is a direct truth, then uh, Einstein discovered special relativity by thinking about electromagnetism and thinking about the symmetry of electromagnetism. And then he realized that, that, there, is this, uh, that there is this deeper understanding of that. And then it was uh, uh, Hermann Minkowski who had taught mathematics to Einstein and who, by the way, said that Einstein's attitude to mathematics was that of a lazy dog. <laughs> uh, so, 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 so Einstein discovered special relativity, but he didn't, it wasn't he who understood what the theory is really about. You know, he, 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 he found the equations, but it was Hermann Minkowski. You know, Einstein, in 1905, he published a special relativity. And two years later, Hermann Minkowski understands what this theory is really about. Namely, that uh, special relativity, despite the name, it's not really, you know, at its core. It's not really a theory about 
the, about how space is relative and time is relative, although both of those things are true. It's a theory about how space-time is absolute. So it's a theory about how space and time are just aspects of of a four-dimensional whole space-time. So talk about unification. So Maxwell united electricity and magnetism, and then the special relativity unified space and time. Wow. So, wow, that's so cool. And so um, we have that, and I like how you say he he discovered the equations or he found the equations like the yeah. he didn't create them they were there they were there to be discovered yes. like almost like an archaeologist digging for something that ex- that exists he or, mined them yeah and the way well, it's so crazy that this was so new i just can't wrap my mind around the fact that this is like all within the last you know 150 years that that everything really became such next level especially when you're then talking about quantum physics yeah, building been upon such an Einstein. Change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just talk. I, I know it's a big, <laughs> it's a big topic, but I guess yeah. how how did quantum physics change then the way that we see the yeah. the theories and also like the world and universe that we perceive? Yeah, and where did it yeah. come from? Is there a figure like mm-hmm. a Maxwell or Einstein yeah. who who discovered yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, I, I'll answer the first part. First, last but first, so the discovery of quantum physics was a really messy process. You had a lot of people involved uh, doing essential work, including among them Einstein. And when Einstein got the Nobel Prize, like quantum physics was a major part of that. Uh, but if you look at where did quantum physics come from, then, you know, we have this classical physics. So we have this theory, Newton's theory, the 1600s, Maxwell's electromagnetism in 1800s. And then people thought that, okay, this is the world. Like, this is now, 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 you know, now we've got it sorted out. And then towards the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 20th century, uh, there started to be observations that these, you know, theories couldn't explain. And also people realized that there are some internal inconsistencies in these theories. And especially it was some, and also especially it was very difficult to understand atoms and how you can have atoms in this theory so how can you how can you build matter and then there were physics branched of into two directions trying to understand these issues so we have special relativity and building that general relativity on the one hand and on the second hand we have quantum mechanics and building on that quantum field theory which unifies quantum mechanics and special relativity and uh, the state of play at the moment is that basically everything that that we have observed can be explained in terms of general relativity and quantum field theory. So they're the most fundamental theories we have. They cannot be derived from anything else at the moment. I mean, hopefully in the future, but at the moment there's nothing more fundamental, but everything that we know can in principle be explained from them. And quantum physics, um, relativity revolutionized our ideas of space and time and gravity. And quantum physics revolutionized our ideas of matter, what is matter, uh, but also our, or also our ideas of, of it's a bit difficult to, ex- to explain in words, of being and, and of happening, like what does it mean to, to be? And, I, I, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, uh, but the most, and, you know, I, I get a bit stuck for words because, because the, the world of, the structure of quantum mechanics is very far removed from our everyday thinking. So before I go on to explain it, maybe I should say that one of the 
uh, striking things is that although quantum mechanics is very counterintuitive um, and it seems that the way the picture of the world it shows is very much at odds with our everyday picture of the world. Nevertheless, it's the most fertile, technologically fertile theory in history. And, you know, all of electronics is based on quantum mechanics. Uh, You know, modern chemistry is based on quantum mechanics. Understanding of the structure of the DNA based on quantum mechanics. You know, if you look at anything digital now, you know, computers, uh, you know, anything based on quantum mechanics. So in this sense, you know, our everyday life has been revolutionized by quantum mechanics. You know, we use quantum mechanics every day in our lives, or, you know, the the devices that we use are are based on that. But if we think about, but there is another, so that's the technological aspect, which, you know, it's, I think it's almost impossible to overstate the impact that quantum mechanics has had. You know, if you think of just electronics, all the devices that that, that we get, you know, that we have from that, you know, how has electronics, how has, how have computers, how have the World Wide Web, all of this, how, how has it changed society and how does it keep changing society? But there is another aspect uh, which has just related to what is our picture uh, of the world. And uh, in quantum, and if you look at the idea of what is ma- what is matter and, and how does the world work that, that exists in classical physics and that also conforms more or less to our everyday understanding, uh, then there, there is the idea, for example, that, that things, that what happens now is determined by what happened before. So the technical mm. term for this is determinism, you know? Mm. So Newtonian mechanics is deterministic, meaning that if you know let's take the solar system if you know where the planets are now and if you know which direction they're moving now precisely and all the other matter in the solar system then you can then you know how they have moved in the past and you know how they will move in the future and the whole world according to newtonian mechanics is like it's it's big clockwork system so the future and past are completely determined Uh, and quantum mechanics is not like that in quantum mechanics it is impossible to predict the future, even in principle. It's just that, you know, technically we can't calculate well enough or, or we don't have all the information. But the only thing that you can predict is the probability of what's going to happen. Mm. And more than that, the state of the world now is not determined. It's indeterminate. So, you know, there is this example of, you know, you probably have heard about Schrodinger's caps. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Do you know what, do you know what it is? That the thing both about the, the duality of like ever the possibility of two things at once because like you're saying it's undetermined yeah yeah so 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 what is basically is that the idea is that you take a cat and uh you place it in a box and in the box there is a a capsule of poison gas. You can see that this thought experiment was worked out in the early 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very nice experiment. Yeah. So, and, and, and then you have a radioactive, then you have a radioactive nucleus, which is, and according to quantum mechanics, you cannot predict what's happening in the micro world. Like you cannot predict when a nucleus is going to decay. You can only get the probability. And you build it so that if this nucleus decays, a particle comes out, breaks the capsule, Poison gas gets into the box and the cat dies. And then you close the box. 
so that you are not able to observe inside. And according to quantum mechanics, the state of the system when you don't observe it is indeterminate. So this, uh, so it, there is only a probability that the nucleus has decayed, and there's a probability that it hasn't decayed. And if, so there's corresponding a probability that the cat is alive or the cat is dead. And Schrodinger actually proposed this thought experiment uh, as an attempt to show that quantum mechanics has to be wrong, you know. And he was one of the main developers of quantum mechanics, but he said, you know, quantum mechanics clearly doesn't describe everything in the world, because if you think about it like this, it's crazy. So clearly it cannot be true. Now we read it the other way around. Because quantum mechanics, as far as we know, describes everything, the world is crazy. <laughs> From our, or, or to put it in a different way, uh, the world is what it is, but our understanding of the world is very limited. And the reason why quantum mechanics, uh, why, for example, it seems very alien to us that something is indeterminate, you know, and this also applies to everything else, not, not only cats, but, but also us. Um, and the reason that the world as revealed by quantum mechanics seems strange to us <clears throat> is because our understanding of the world has evolved to describe the conditions that are relevant for our survival and that we can perceive. So this means, you know, very limited uh, scale, you know, in terms of space, you know, maybe we you know, naturally think about one millimeter and, and a few kilometers or, or something like this, very limited in energy, um, uh, limited in duration, like we, we don't maybe, you know, from small fraction of a second to, to some hours or years or, or tens of years like this. <clears throat> and there are many physical phenomena uh, that become relevant outside of this, outside of these borders. And for example, quantum the quantum mechanical effects are typically only important on very small scales. And uh, the, the tools of thinking in our brains about this phenomena or about space and time uh, that have evolved are not adequate <clears throat> to describe all of the physics, you know, beyond this narrow range. Is this why you said that it's it's almost it it encompasses two things? It's like counterintuitive to what we think that we understand about humanity because we want to explain everything with the physics that we know, but then it also does kind of um, define what it is at the core of what it means to be human because there's this great mystery that is unexplained and that's always kind of possible. No, not really. I mean, we can understand. <laughs> we just have we just have to develop new tools. You know, yeah. Because this is like saying, you know, uh, you know, you can never build a skyscraper, you know, because your hands weren't evolved for it. Mm -hmm. In a way, this is true. You know, you can never build the glass and the steel or, or something using only your hands. But we can build tools using which we can construct these buildings. And in the same way, uh, we can use mathematical tools, you know, to understand these things mathematically. And you can really follow. There's no mystery. You know, you can follow from A to B to C. You can f see how everything goes. And it's still counterintuitive. Like, it doesn't correspond to the way you think the world should work. But that's your problem. You know, it's not but wait, so, so okay, so let me... Let me go one step further. Is it possible to sure. create like a massive AI that can predict? I mean, because you said it's all based on probability. So, like, 
can we with the with likely probability like determine where our civilization is going if we like created like a master AI based on all of you know civilization thus far on the well, probability you know, of our is, actions? Yeah, well, this has really nothing to do with whether at at the heart things are probabilistic or not. It's, that's just the question. You know, do we have enough information? Do we have enough computing power and so on? But I think it's not. You know, the system, humanity is, is such a complicated system and the whole planet is such a complicated system. You know, physics has really worked best when it's looked at systems that are as simple as possible and building from there. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, that's why, you know, in physics, you have detailed, precise mathematical models for how the world works and you can go and test them observationally. And uh, if you talk about even psychology, you know, which is, you know, talking about one person, that's much easier than all of humanity. <clears throat> you can't really have that. Humans are too complicated. And even if you talk about simpler level, like if, if you don't, if you talk about, if you want to understand all of the, or if you want to understand how cells work in the human body, then you cannot calculate starting, you know, from quantum physics, how, how, how all of the cells work. In principle, yes. But in practice, it's just too complicated. The system is too complicated. You yeah. have to use different methods to, to study it. Abby, you just described the plot of the book by Isaac Asimov, a foundation or the book series. It's about a guy who discovers a, a formula to predict everything that's going to happen for human civilization for like the next hundreds of years. I guess I'm still a little bit confused about the so so Schrodinger Schrodinger's cat, the, yeah. the phenomenon is so it that that's not mysterious at all. It's just that both are possible okay. when you're when they're not observable okay right? um okay i said there's no mystery that that's maybe not 100 percent true so so uh so if we look at quantum mechanics and if you look at what can we predict from it you know how do we predict the paths of particles say in a collider or how do we predict that you know if you have a circuitry in your phone you know uh, how is this going to work how are the electrons going to travel there or so on then we can predict wonderfully what happens and uh, and we see that the predictions work, you know, these devices work, there's no question about it. Uh, at the same time, it's true that understanding why do we perceive the world, you know, as determined. So why, why is it that in the macroscopic world we don't see these quantum phenomena? Mm. And this is something that's not completely understood. So if you think about the Schrodinger cat type of uh uh, phenomena. So you can do those kinds of experiments, but the biggest system for which we have been done them is a molecule that has like 2,000 atoms. And uh, we haven't been able to do them with, with systems more complicated than that. Like there we can really show that the system existed, you know, what is called technically a superposition, you know, of two, of two states that it was, there's a, was just a probability that maybe it was there, maybe it was here and, uh, and that the path was, was not determined. But we haven't been able to do that for, for bigger systems because to to do that the system needs to be very isolated what happens if you have a bigger system then the, it uh, it be, it behaves very uh, close to the to deterministic and this is not completely understood like this transition from small systems to big systems and basically why does our everyday world look determined mm-hmm. uh, this is this is this is one of the biggest 
questions in physics that still unanswered. We have understood a bit more about that over the years, but uh, we haven't done. That's something we don't understand completely. So that I could, I think one could say, it's a mystery, but it's not an I hope insoluble, insoluble right. mystery. Like, right, right, right. It's just something we don't know at the moment. Right, and so the physics that we do have, um, it is it true that it doesn't apply to everything in the universe? Like there are phenomena and, and things that we can observe that seem to defy physics as we know it. I mean, for example, no, really, no. Oh nice. wow, that's awesome. We're doing good then. Yeah, <laughs> we've yeah. we done good. It's, it's yeah, we have the opposite problem. In fact, we have, for example, if you think of something like dark matter, mm-hmm. right, which is one of the main research topics in cosmology then we have hundreds and hundreds of models of dark matter that work and explain the observations. We just, just don't have enough observations to tell us which one of them is correct. Oh, wow. We have the opposite problem. So talk about dark matter, because what really is it? How is it different from the matter that exists on Earth and that we are composed of? Yeah, I'm really, we're getting to dark matter instead of quantum physics, because this is something that's very easy to explain. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I like to so think I was ma- following the quantum physics. Of, I feel like I no, I feel like I, like I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah. So, so dark matter is matter that we have detected only gravitationally. So it's something we don't see it send light, we don't see it absorb light, we don't see it uh, deflect, you know, uh, reflect light. Uh, and if you look at matter in the universe, uh, about twenty uh, percent is ordinary matter, so it's built from nuclei and electrons, same stuff that we are built from. Uh, and 80% is dark matter. So now it may seem, so this dark matter is, uh, it, this word dark is, sounds maybe a bit mysterious. We could replace that with the word invisible because that's really what it is. It's matter that we can't see with light, uh, and we also can't touch it. So probably in this room where I am, Dark matter is passing through me right now, and probably where you are, dark Ooh. matter is passing through you, but you can't touch it. And the reason for both of these things, why we can't see it, why we can't touch it, is probably the same. It's probably composed of some particles that don't have electric charge. You know, because mm. you see something, because light from the sun or from a lamp or from a flame, you know, uh, hits the electrons in your eye, you know, you know, hits somebody, and then, ref- you know, reflects from the electrons in them, hits the electrons in your eye, and that's why you see them. But if this person didn't, if they, if they were composed of matter that didn't have any electric charges, they wouldn't interact with light. You know, light interacts with electric charges, so light would pass through them, they would be invisible. The reason why your hand doesn't go through your, through the desk is because, you know, if you think of the molecules in your hand, they're composed of nuclei and, and electrons. And when you bring uh, your hand close to same same with the desk. If you bring your hand and the desk close, then their electrons become close to each other. They have the same electric charge, both are negative, so they repel each other. And it's very easy to see that if you if you try to bring them closer and closer, if you bring your hand, push your hand into the desk, the force becomes just stronger and stronger. But if the desk did not have electric charges, your hand would go through it. So that's dark matter. That's simple. And so what would happen if we, if our, the matter in our body was replaced with dark matter? Would we just, <laughs> just, yeah, we, just cease become to a ghost? Be, yeah, but just... <laughs> yeah, 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 that's a good question. So what are the, so, so probably dark matter interacts weakly, not only with light and with ordinary matter, but with itself. So probably there are no dark matter galaxies or stars or planets or, or, or beings. Probably it's just, you know, this diffuse gas of, of particles. 
That's really cool because I think when people think of dark matter, they think it's just like what is in the empty pockets of space. We thought mm-hmm. there was nothing there, and it turns out there is something there called dark matter. But you're saying it's actually it's everywhere. it's everywhere. It's not just it, in yeah. the em- so-called empty pockets of space. Yeah, and if you think about uh, you know, and if you think about galaxies, then the visible part of the galaxy that we see is only a tiny part. Like most of the matter in the galaxy is dark matter. So if you think of a galaxy, then it's actually this big halo, like roughly spherical or ellipsoidal halo of dark matter particles, this dark matter gas that has some clumps somewhere. And then at the center, there is this, you know, small part that's the visible matter. And when did this, you know, get discovered, I guess? I mean, how did this come about that our understanding of right, dark matter? Right, right, right. So, uh, so the word dark matter is actually exactly 100 years old. So there was the Dutch astronomer Jacobus Kapten who talked about the possibility that, you know, maybe there's stuff in the universe that making things move, you know, stars move that we don't see. And he called it dark matter. And then uh, Jan Oort, another Dutch astronomer, 10 years later, announced that looking at how stars are moving uh, perpendicular to the plane of the galaxy, he found dark matter. This idea is very simple. If you think of stars that are moving, you know, orthogonal to the plane of the galaxy, you know, up and down, then the more stuff, the more mass there is in the plane of the galaxy, the bigger is the force on them, so the faster they move, right? So if you measure how fast these stars are moving, you're able to determine how much mass there is in the disk of the galaxy. So he did these measurements, and then he declared that there is all this dark matter in the Milky Way. Uh, However, Urt is not remembered, tragically, as the discoverer of dark matter because he was wrong. I mean, his conclusion that there is dark matter is right, but, the observ- but it doesn't follow from the observations. So, so next year, there was uh, the Swiss astronomer Fritz Zwicky, who looked at the Coma galaxy cluster. So galaxy clusters are a bunch of, it's a bunch of galaxies that are held together by the gravitational force, and they're just orbiting around each other in a complicated, in a messy way. And he, but the idea is the same. The more mass you have inside this cluster, the faster are the motions, you know, because the bigger are the forces. So and he looked at the motions and he concluded that there's most of the matter there is dark matter. And this wasn't widely accepted, but this was the real discovery of dark matter. Then it was basically in the 1970s that people then found that, okay, we definitely need dark matter. And also in the late 1970s, that is definitely, because first thing it is, you just think it's something that's just, it's just stuff that doesn't emit a lot of light, like ordinary matter, but, you know, we just, it's just dim. But then it was realized that no, it actually has to be something that's not ordinary matter and it has to be invisible. And since then we have had, since the late seventies, early eighties, we have had hundreds of models of, of trying to explain what dark matter is because it's very easy to explain. The only thing you need is a particle that, you know, is massive, doesn't have electric charge and that is just long lived enough. So that is still around. So this is very easy. Right. It's like almost what, what's absent we know has to be there based on yeah. the physics that we understand. I mean, do you think that we'll get to a point where we can actually observe it in a different way? Yeah, this is this is one of the big questions. I mean, there are, there has been a lot of effort put into trying to detect, like we have lots of evidence that dark matter exists from effects of gravity, you know, how it affects stars, how it affects uh, galaxies, how it affects, how it bends light and and, and, you know, all sorts of evidence. But it's all gravitational. So to be really sure, we would need to detect the dark matter particle or, or 
the other possibility is the dark matter is composed of black holes, which are one of the things that that, that I work on. Uh, but if it's composed of, then we should have to you know, have some way of detecting those black holes. But if not, if it's composed of particles, then we would have to find those dark matter particles. And there are various um, observations underway that have looked for dark matter particles um, uh, because you know dark matter is you know most of the matter in in the galaxy is dark matter so we are actually moving through dark matter because the sun is orbiting around the center of the milky way at 200 kilometers per second so we're actually moving through this gas of dark matter at 200 kilometers per second so it's speeding past our bodies so then you can build a detector in the lab that's trying to find these particles you know they detect you know they interact very weakly with ordinary matter, but there has to be there has to be some interaction. So there are various uh, observations, um, various teams that have that are, have looked for dark matter are looking at dark matter. So far, we haven't found the particle, and uh, since there are so many models, there are different ways of looking at these particles. So we don't know. You know, it's possible that there will be a detection next year. It's possible that we will never detect the dark matter particle. Because it all depends on how strongly does it interact with ordinary matter. Incredibly fascinating. Um, I wanted to, you know, I'm a, I'm a newly recruited devotee of the black hole cosmology. And before we get into your take on that, I do want to, I, I, I want to kind of compare black holes to neutron stars. I mean, are they mm-hmm. even comparable? What exactly is a neutron star? What are we learning about the physics of those entities? Yeah. So, so the question is, if you have heavy stars, then what happens at the end of their life? You know, stars shine because they have nuclear reactions in the center. There are nuclear fusion going on, like we earlier discussed, you know, these lighter nuclei that are then bound into uh, heavier ones. Uh, and at some point, the fuel runs out. And then if the star is uh, <clears throat> sufficiently heavy, um, you know, fuel runs out, the star collapses. And if it's sufficiently heavy then the only thing that, that then it's pushed. So um, uh, the into such a high density, the matter is pushed uh, into such a small region uh, that the protons and the electrons fuse and you just get uh, new, and you just get neutrons. So you get a neutron star that's, that's this extremely, uh, compact, you know, we're talking about the order of 10 kilometers, um, you know, size, uh, object that is, uh, dense, uh, rotating rapidly. And then if the star is sufficiently massive that even this neutron star, that if there's so much stuff that, that, that this neutron star collapses further, uh, then you have a black hole. So a black hole, is, I don't know whether one should be called an object, but mm. according to general relativity, uh, if you put enough mass inside small enough radius, uh, then you create what's called an event horizon. So you create this, there is this area of space-time where you can enter, but you cannot come back. And Roger Penrose got one half the Nobel Prize uh, two years ago. I think it was two years ago for for showing that that black hole formation is uh, is a general prediction of general relativity. This is something that really happens in the world. And the other half went to 
two teams of observers who showed that at the center of the Milky Way, there is a black hole with, right. uh, with mass of four million solar masses. And what are, what are we learning? Actually, now is the golden age of black holes. And we're also learning a lot new about neutron stars. And that's because, uh, we now have gravitational wave detectors. So gravitational waves are, uh, ripples in, in space time. So, if, okay. So if go a bit back. So, so you know that, uh, in general relativity, uh, gravity, like, there is no direct gravitational force between particles. What happens is that masses affect space-time, they curve space-time, and then this curvature of space-time affects other masses. So sun is not pulling the Earth. The sun is curving the space-time around it, and this affects the Earth. So to give a very simple example, wow. if I shake my hands, then what happens is that I, I disrupt the space-time around me, and there are these small ripples in the space-time that travel at the speed of light, that convey, you know, that my the position of my hands is different. And once they reach, you know, somebody on the moon in one second, then the gravitational field there field there changes. You know, they're pulling down the moon a bit more. In eight minutes, eight minutes they reach the sun and so on. And most of these ripples are very, very weak. They're very difficult to detect. Uh, but if you have these very compact objects, like neutron stars or black holes orbiting each other, then you create huge disruptions. In the, uh, in the space-time curvature. And as they orbit each other, they send these ripples, they lose energy. So then they become closer and closer to each other until they merge. Uh, and then this merger is also a very violent process that sends out these, these violent ripples. And these ripples from two colliding black holes were first detected in September 2015. And the Nobel Prize was given for that uh, two years later. And it's why looking at how do these ripples look, like this first detection was in 2000, September 2015, was you had two black holes of 30 solar masses that merged a billion years ago and a billion light years away from us. And if when we look at these detailed signals of, you know, how do these ripples look, which we can detect in the laboratory now, on Earth, you know, because there are these collisions that are happening, or I should say, ha- ha- happened, you know, long time ago, and the waves are passing through us. So we get detailed information about black holes, about mergers of black holes, and also uh, detailed inf- more and more detailed information about what neutron stars are like. Although I think we have better observations of neutron stars from uh, from other sources, but 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 this is improving. So it's uh, uh, the Research on black holes has never been so rich as it is now. I want to go back to something you said to make sure I understood it correctly. So you're saying when I shake my hand back and forth, it Mm. is creating a ripple in space-time that actually travels through the universe. Exactly. And so it's actually hitting the moon in one second because the moon is about one light Light second second away. away. Yeah. So that every little thing is creating this ripple in space-time that just travels forever, yeah. or like what? Yeah, they travel basically forever. Wow. I mean, of course, they lose a little bit of energy on the way because they affect a little the stuff that they travel. But gravitational waves interact very, very weakly, which is why they were, which is one reason why they are so difficult to detect. So they travel for a uh, well, 
you know, nothing goes on eternally, but mm-hmm. for an extremely long time, even by cosmological standards. So the universe is full of these gravitational waves that are passing through us all the time, but most of, but they're extremely weak and detecting, you know, even the gravitational waves from these black hole collisions requires, um, extremely precise instruments. You know, if you were next to the black holes, you know, you wouldn't have any problem detecting it. You know, it's the huge effect. But when you're a billion light years away, uh, then it's very weak. Wow. And uh, back to this idea of like, you know, we have all of these models for dark matter that work. You know, there's like too many yeah. that work. So yeah. is it true that only one of the models is actually correct? Or, you know, like, are, is it true that all? Like, you know, so what is, does it mean that we're just understanding too, we haven't honed it in enough to fully be able to to lock it in? Or how does that, how does that work that there's all these different models that seem to work? Does that mean yeah. that they're all right or we haven't focused yeah. it in enough? Yeah, you, you, you hit on a very sensitive spot, you know. Almost all of the work that we theoretical physicists do is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not in the sense that it's mathematically wrong. Sometimes also that, you know, people make mistakes. But, uh, but in the sense that it turns out that it doesn't describe the universe. So if you take 200 models of dark matter, at most, one of them is right, you know, and maybe all of them are wrong. Maybe, right. maybe dark matter is something that we haven't thought At of yet. At most, one of them is right. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And of course, if, it, if you think about it in a bit more sophisticated way, uh, often, you know, somebody hits on a model that's not perfectly right, but then you find that some aspect of that model is right, some part of that model. And then maybe you combine it with an aspect from another model, and then you put them together, and then you see, okay, this is the way things actually are. Amazing. And so let's get back to this. We mentioned it in your introduction about mm-hmm. some of your work on the expansion of the universe. And, yes. you know, we know that since the Big Bang, the universe has been expanding. Then there is a point where it was observed that not only is the universe expanding, but that expansion is accelerating. And then right. people like you started looking for what is the explanations for why it would be accelerating and yeah. you uh, were an early researcher in looking into dark matter as one of those explanations. Is that correct? Yeah, it's not really so much dark matter. It's both dark matter and ordinary matter. It's basically the formation of structures in the universe. And by structures, I mean, you know, galaxies and the filaments of galaxies. And, you know, what happens is the universe, you know, the early universe, as I mentioned, was this very even soup of matter. And what happens is the universe grows old that, that if you have a bit more, when you have a bit more, matter in some region, then, you know, its gravity pulls matter towards it. So there's even more matter that it pulls even more. And then these spots where you have these overdensities, you form galaxies, then you form clusters of galaxies and filaments and so on, and mass accretes to them. And then most of the volume of the universe is in these um, very underdense regions called voids. And I started, and this is, this, this process is very well known, very well understood. And then I started looking at, uh, not the only one, but, uh, I started, was one of the first who started looking at, okay, we know how the expansion of the universe affects how these structures form. What about the other side of the coin? How does the formation of these structures affects, affect how the universe expands? Right. And um, what what is there... Is that the explanation? Is that so? I guess okay. So if I understand it correctly, the reason that the dark matter and these pockets of the universe are causing the universe to expand is it because the the amount of it is actually growing? Like, are we getting 
is there like a finite amount of dark matter that's just always been in the universe or is it something that is being created or certain things are turning into dark matter or is it is it a yeah. s- substance that is actually growing in the its amount in the universe yeah right so so dark matter like ordinary matter is not really being born like you have mm-hmm. the you have the same amount of stuff like it was born in the very early universe in the fraction of the first second but after that basically you have had the same amount mm-hmm. Really interesting. And okay, so before we get into some calls, uh, if you have a question for our guest, get in the queue. We're going to take some calls in just a moment. Um, you know, I, we wanted to ask you, you know, you're saying we're always make we're always making new discoveries. And even just, as you mentioned, very recently, we're observing certain things for the first time. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you're very excited about that you feel like we are on the verge of figuring out that would change a lot? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's very difficult to predict where breakthrough, breakthroughs happen, you know, mm-hmm. uh, especially in theory, because often they, well, whether it's theory of observations, actually, but because uh, they are usually, like, if you look at the history of people trying to predict where physics is going to go, these predictions haven't turned out to be very well. So, 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 so I, so I'd rather, so I'd rather not predict what says, uh, but there's one thing that cosmologists, a lot of cosmologists are thinking about at the moment. And it's related to the rate at which the universe expands. And it's basically mm-hmm. that there are two ways, if I simplify a little bit, two ways of determining this expansion, either that you measure objects that are very close to us, and then you see just how, how fast are, are they receding from us. So this is a very direct way. And then there is another way, namely that you look at objects that are further away and then you figure out what has happened to the light when it's moved from these objects and how does it, uh, when you look at light coming from, from far away and then you figure out what has happened to the light in between and then you make these indirect, uh, conclusions. But, and if you look at these two different ways, if you come from light coming relatively night and, and light coming from far away, it appears that the conclusions that you make about the, uh, how the universe is expanding now, they're roughly the same, but there's like a, you know, a few percent um, difference, um, and which is much much bigger than the error bars. So it's not. So there's no. So we. So it seems that there is some discrepancy in the way we either understand, and it's it's not clear where the discrepancy is. Maybe it's a discrepancy of. Uh, how the universe is expanding, that we have a dip, wrong idea about how it's precisely expanding, uh, and maybe it's something else. And this is something that's really puzzling because the observations are now becoming very precise and uh, and there's no, doesn't seem to be, you know, unlike in the case of dark matter, there doesn't still, at the moment, seem to be a good theoretical explanation for that. Um, just riffing off the point that you said earlier about how, you know, yeah. if you, if you move something physically and then that can move out into space kind of in an infinite fashion, even though it's like very minimized depending on how small mm. we're talking about. But like, yeah. what about vibes? What about just like, <laughs> you know, like, like, I mean, just the fact that, <laughs> you know, that whole theory of like mind over matter quite. Or like we're creating energy. We're creating energy. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I don't believe in that. In terms of like, you know, when you're looking at, at the theory of that, but all, but it is also interesting that like your body can be destroyed by stress, you know, for example, just something that you are obsessing mm-hmm. over mentally and creating these thoughts that actually do destroy parts of your own matter. 
change, I guess, your energy and heat output, yeah. which create a, maybe a gravitational ripple. Yeah, so what... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm perfectly sure that gravity has nothing to do with it because that's uh, the effects of these gravitational waves and the, the, the effects of this of gravity uh, are far too weak. And I think when people talk about energy, for example, in this uh, psychological sense, it's a very different use of the word than in physics. And I think a lot of the confusion that people have about physics, not all, but a lot of the confusion arises from the fact that in physics, some words are used with a very precise meaning, and these same words are used in a different and imprecise meaning in, in everyday speech. Let's sum this up before we take a couple calls here about your theory on the nature of the universe. I mean, where where did it all come from? <laughs> um, uh, do you have a view on this? Are you yeah, like also what, what, part of the black hole cosmology cult? I'm not sure what... <laughs> I think I mean, what everybody's referring to is, um, is our the possibility universe. that our universe was not the first, that it's the product of uh, something yeah. happening in another universe that created it. And, and I guess you're... There's a lot of theories out there about what happened before the Big Bang and all of that. And, and what yeah. is there one that you feel is most plausible? The possibilities of simultaneous, not simultaneous, but I mean several Big Bangs happening that we are yeah. perhaps yeah. the child of a of a parent uh, yeah. universe birthed out of a black hole. Yeah, <clears throat> I think it's uh, might be useful to try to visualize uh, scientific research. You know, that at the, if you think that there is like a hard core of things that you cannot reasonably doubt, that are beyond reasonable doubt, like, I don't know, like the, you know, the Earth is spherical, roughly speaking, the Earth is going around the sun, uh, the universe is expanding. You know, these are statements that, that it's, it's impossible to basically rationally doubt. Uh, and then there is the frontier of research, you know, like, for example, uh, what is happening in the interiors of neutron stars? This is a very active field of research. Uh, or, you know, in the when you have two black holes colliding and the event horizons merge, uh, you know, can you see some violations of general relativity? Can you see some, some quantum gravity effects or, or something like this? Or, or for example, uh, how are the uh, big black holes at the center of, of centers of galaxies formed. So this is a research that, you know, it's on the frontier. Like we know, basically we know things that lead to it. And then we take one more step and ask, okay, what's, what's happening here. And then there's lots of speculation. Uh, and it's healthy that there's lots of speculation and these ideas about the multiverse or our universe being born from a previous universe or something, they are of the speculation kind. Like they are not based on what we know. There is no reason whatsoever to think that they are true. Uh, and maybe some part of these speculative ideas will at some point be incorporated into, you know, will become the frontier of physics and, and then the core of physics. But most of it won't. And uh, I'm not terribly interested in, uh, like, I don't, I don't feel that I need to have a conviction about very speculative things. So you don't even really go there when it comes to, you know, how, where did it all come from and well, how did well, the Big Bang even, you know, uh, happen? Well, you know, this place? is, well, you know, this is a, uh, 
No, I'm just approaching it from from the direction of what we do know. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a very successful theory of the primordial universe of what happened maybe in the first billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second called cosmic inflation that explains where the seeds of structure comes from, uh, where does the universe look uh, similar in, in all directions and in all places, um, you know, what happened in those very early eras and... Uh, that's one of the main research topics in cosmology. I'm also also working on it, also thinking about how this is how we can use observations related to inflation to understand what space time is made of. Uh, but we have no firm idea about what happened before inflation, and uh, we don't also have solid theoretical thinking for for going beyond that. And I think the most interesting thing is to think take these things that are that, you know, we do know and try to, for me, and to try to push a little bit beyond and try to understand what's happening there. So, for example, the, what's the, so we talked about quantum mechanics and, you know, what does the, you know, why why does the large scale universe, well, you know, why does the medium scale, you know, what does our scale, why does everyday life look determined? But this is also a question for inflationary cosmology, you know, because everything in the universe is born from, quantum fluctuations in the primordial universe. So the question is, why does the universe look uh, determined? And I think this, for example, is a very interesting question in inflation that we can look at using the tools we have and that we can hope to have some observations on. And I think it's much more interesting to try to do that than to speculate at things that are not on firm footing. That makes sense, I guess, when you are able to read the music of physics uh there's so much there to explore that why would you bother with the stuff we don't have the tools to to even look at at all when there's so much we do have the tools to look at that is so mysterious and illuminating um we're going to go to the calls now we got a couple people on the line uh brady you're the first one on tell us where you are calling from what's up space cadets i'm hey. from <laughs> and Cool show. I was actually going to ask about uh, gravitational waves at the beginning of the show, and we hit it right at the end. And like he mentioned, the symmetry between starlight and the visible spectrum of light in our eyes, we also exhibit a symmetry between our brain waves in the ionosphere of the planet. And so I'm wondering what he, what kind of light you might be able to shed on the relationship between gravitational waves from the center of our galaxy, the black hole in the center of our galaxy and how those waves might interact with our sun and how um, that might in turn have an effect on our ionosphere. And then that might have an effect on our brains, consciousness, uh, sympathetic nervous system, our automatic nervous system, heart rate, stuff like that. Yeah, that's actually a very easy question. There's no effect whatsoever. Because, <laughs> because, because the gravitation, first of all, the black hole at the center of our galaxy is very quiet. So, uh, there's very little stuff falling in there. And if you just have a black hole that's just sitting there, it doesn't send gravitation waves. You have to have, you know, black holes orbiting each other or stuff falling into it or something. But even when there's stuff falling into it, which there has been in the, in the recent, you know, past history of the Milky Way, not in recent human history, um, uh, but even when that happens, the gravitational waves are very weak. You know, the, the strongest gravitational waves that we have, you know, affect distances when they pass through Earth at about the level of one billionth of a billionth of a thousand. So, you know, in the, 
in the gravitational wave detectors that we have that are, you know, where you have a tunnel four kilometers long and you see how is the length of this tunnel changing, it changes 1,000 by 1,000th of the diameter of a proton. Of course, you cannot measure lengths, lengths that are smaller than this, but you can measure this change of length incredibly enough. It's so, if, so if you want to Google, Google like LIGO, gravitational wave detector, it's really fascinating stuff how they do it. But these effects are so, so tiny that you need to have extremely sophisticated technology to even see them. Like they have no impact on everyday life. Thank you for that. And Brady, thank you so much for your question. We have Jared on the line next. Jared, welcome to the show. And where are you calling from? Uh, hey, guys. I'm calling from Calgary, Alberta in Canada. Hello. And uh, first, just wanted to say <clears throat> uh, kind of long time, first time, really inspired by Abby and Mike for everything you do. You guys are awesome. And thanks for having this discussion today. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, my uh, question is more... Um, Somewhat a comment on something that was said earlier in our growing understanding of of these concepts where um, the uh, professor was saying that, well, we just kind of need to acquire better and different tools to further our understanding of different things where at one time it was impossible to consider building a skyscraper until we had the tools to build such building. Yeah. And... I've kind of been thinking about that throughout the call in terms of are these areas of really intense speculation, maybe areas of, I don't know, aspects of our reality where maybe because we are pieces of this reality, we are within this system ourselves, we never really will have the tools to fully grasp that understanding. And I guess is that sort of a, an area where there does exist some potential or possibility for faith, religion, those kinds of I, things. I hear Schrodinger's cat in the background. <laughs> it's alive. It didn't, it's like, alive. We, didn't we figured it out. Yeah. It's alive. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So there is a, first of all, it's definitely true that because we are built from the stuff that we are trying to find out how, how it works. And it's definitely true that, for example, our understanding of how the human brain works and how we think is completely wrong, <clears throat> you know, and that we cannot just by thinking find out how it works. We have to do experiments and measurements to see how the brain actually works. Um, but I don't, but I don't, okay, of course, we don't know if there is a, if there is a limit to, to, to what we can understand, but I don't see any indications of of such a limit, and I think we have to, you know, because and part of that is that understanding of the world and physics, you know, is a collective endeavor. Like there was this shipbuilding, or you build a skyscraper, or whatever. So there is no person on Earth that understands even all of the knowledge that's necessary, you know, for the working of the phone in your pocket much less, you know, or, or, or everything, everything else in physics. And there is no person in the world who understands all of the mathematical structures and all of the mathematical models uh, that are used in physics. So already, you know, our understanding of the world is so complex that no single human can, can, uh, can uh, master it all. But we can work collectively and we can understand pieced here 
piece there. And if when there is some structure that's too complicated for you to figure out, maybe you figure out one small part and somebody else figures out uh, another small part. And maybe somebody has like an overall view where they don't understand the details, but but but, but they can see the big picture. But I think you are... Um, so I, I don't know what to say about your question related to, to, uh, to faith, but this possibility that if the, is, are we fundamentally limited in understanding the universe, that may be... Uh, I don't see an indication for it, but that doesn't mean that's not the case. We don't know. That is a really cool question and a, an even cooler answer because, you know, to me, I've always kind of thought that, yeah, we can figure some stuff out as humans, but the universe is so complex. Uh, it's how could we possibly actually figure it all out? There's always going to be things that are out of reach. And to hear from someone who works in the field that you don't see any indication that we can't understand it all i think is great and encouraging that's a beautiful way to end um suksu do you have any place that people can oh we just got another caller on the line suksu do you mind if we take that call before we wrap it up no go ahead okay, okay uh thanks so much for your call um jared and jordan you're on the line where are you calling from Hello, everybody i'm calling from philadelphia pennsylvania I was curious, Suksu, if your mm-hmm. all of your you know, physics research that you've been doing and the way you try to communicate all this to the public, and we, we see like maybe there's not a very high level of public literacy or understanding of the, mm. of the changes in our understanding of like high-level cosmological physics over the yeah. last however many decades, and I'm a math teacher myself i was just wondering if the work you do has given you any you have any like thoughts or strong opinions or not so strong opinions about ways that we should be changing our science teaching like in our, at the public school level or at the higher levels in order to maybe make it easier for more people to like understand why this work is socially relevant is relevant to our society <laughs> Yeah, you know, actually, I do have very strong opinions on this topic. <laughs> so, so, so I've written about this topic. And actually, in, in two weeks, I'll be talking to the uh, Society of Finnish Teachers of, of Mathematics and Sciences about this, invited to address the, the annual conference to talk about this very topic. Uh, I think we are, uh, at least in Finland, you know, where I, where I know what the textbooks are and what the curriculum is, we are very ill-served by our school system when it comes to science. And, uh, you know, when I, you know, I do a lot of popularization of science and I, and I talk to people about science and, and people, you know, and there's such huge interest in these topics. You know, you look at the discovery of the Higgs boson, which was followed by, I don't know, one billion people or something, or these gravitational waves, which make the, uh, the first pages of newspapers and so on. And when there was, you know, the, false discovery of faster than light neutrinos, which let's not get into that. I thought that should never have been published. But, you know, people stopped me like I didn't know. People were like, hey, uh, you're the physicist. What's going on with these neutrinos? And this is something that has no bearing, you know, on on technology. Because there's this idea that, oh, yeah, you know, physics, we need to have these applications. So, on. But if, if you look at what people are interested in, they're really interested in fundamental stuff. But if you look at what they learn at school in the physics, then often it's very... Um, focused on calculating simple things and calculating if you do physics it's obviously important but if you do calculations without understanding what's the point of it and do calculations without seeing what's the point of the calculation then it's then it can be very demoralizing 
Um, and also the physics is presented in a very decontextualized manner. You know, you don't explain, you know, in a very fragmented manner. So you don't really explain what is the structure of physics that we have? How are these things interlinked? What have, what have we learned about this? What, what is it telling, telling us about the world? So what I think we should really have in schools is we should have more physics should be taught in a way, more in a way, the way history is taught. So if you think about how history is taught, you don't really teach in history class people, you know, how do you read historical documents or how do you, you know, uh, dig ruins, maybe that's archaeology, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, you know, or how do you analyze different texts or so on, or, although, you know, that can all be very interesting. But to teach about them, what have we learned from history, right? Right. And in, and in physics, I think it would be good to have, you know, I, I think you need to have these courses where you have calculations for people who become engineers or physicists or something or want to do that. But, but that you would have more courses that are really about what are the concepts of physics? Uh, you know, what is, uh, what does, you know, special relativity, general relativity, quantum physics, what do they teach us about the world? Uh, what is, what is physics about? And to really give you some overall framework. So that, for example, when you see in the news, oh, gravitational waves from colliding black holes have been detected, then it's not that you have to know, you know, what it is, but that you have a framework where you can put this information and then where you can meaningfully look for more information and engage with this in a way that makes sense and takes you further. That's such a great point because I go back to my, um, you know, my, my education of mathematics and calculus and how decontextualized it all was and how difficult it was for me to grasp and how much I just gave up because it was just all mounting on my, you know, this foundation of math that I actually didn't really have that solid of a grasp on. And like statistics seemed more fascinating to me because it was like applied, like you can really look at like observable things in the world and really understand more than just all the, the numbers and just like really crunching the data and stuff like that. And the way that you just broke down just the history of physics um, was so fascinating. And I just wish that a lot of people who are learning these things for the first time can understand them like they should be understood and how they have changed the way that we can observe the universe and understand how we fit into it. Suksu, thank you so much. This was this has been an incredibly dosed episode. Very wonderful to hear from you. Thank you so much for your time, for all of your work, for giving us a completely new perspective on physics. And we hope to continue to learn from you as well as the field. Um, anywhere that people can follow you. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so most of my, well, most of my, I mean, my professional work is, I mean, will be impenetrable to people who are not physicists. And then my popular work that, 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 I, that I hope is more accessible is unfortunately in Finnish. I mean, I am on Twitter and my, six, my name is Siksurazanen, but I don't tweet that much about, about physics. So, so this uh, so episode for, is the best thing in English for people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There have been like, a, there have been like a few small pieces, I think, but, uh, but, not that much more unfortunately so thank you for having me we hope to have you on again as soon as you discover what's next suksu rasanan cosmologist thank you so much for everything thank you thanks everyone for joining us today on dosed
kicking you out with some music that Abby's found for us once again. If you uh, can identify the track at the beginning of the episode and hit us up with the answer, we'll uh, let, you cut the, let, you, <laughs> let you cut the line on the next episode or something. This was actually some Creative Commons track that I found, which I appreciate. Fair use for everyone. Art is free. <laughs> we'll uh, be taking a little break the next two weeks. You won't be hearing from us because Abby and I are headed to Guam and then Okinawa for our film project, Earth's Greatest Enemy documenting the impact of U.S. military bases abroad. If you want to learn more about that and support it, in particular the thousands of dollars it is going to cost to go with a crew to Guam and Japan, go to earthsgreatestenemy.com and you can learn all about the project, donate, all that good stuff. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We love our Dost family. And we will see you very, very soon. Dosed.